Hey, I'm Isaac. And I'm Casey. And this is Mind Over Movies. Yes, it's a new podcast. You know, you were probably thinking, you don't have enough white males talking in your ears about their favorite movies, but let me tell you, this is exactly that. (laughs) You haven't heard from these two white males, though. Our opinion matters, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I sometimes say our opinion is the only opinion that matters. I... Conway, at least <laughs> Conway, Arkansas. We're we're Arkansan. Um, you know, we're we're a bit starved for movie nerds out here, so we're yeah. we're usually talking to each other. So I guess I guess our our general thinking was, if we're gonna talk so much about movies, might as well exactly <laughs> document it at least. Yeah, I, uh, I think we were I think we were at a party when we had the idea or something. A uh, couple drinks in, we were like, we should just do a podcast. <laughs> Uh, and then it's been a long time coming, but it's here. It's um, finally here, man. Yeah. Well, uh, I, we're going to introduce ourselves a little bit more. Um, Isaac, you want to you wanna go first? Do you want me to go first? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll oh, take yeah. this one. Okay. Uh, so our, our idea for this, this opener is that maybe we'd let you in on some of our tastes, you know. And the... Let you know some of our favorite movies. Yeah, just to give you an idea if you actually want to hear our opinions or not. Yeah. (laughs) I know a lot of people uh, hear, oh, you know, I'm a big Quentin Tarantino fan. And then, like, that's that's all they need to hear. It's like, okay. They're like, ah, never mind. (laughs) Have you ever heard of the movie Her? (laughs) Groundbreaking. No, but uh, I thought, and Casey thought, that this would be a good way. You know that you could judge us right off the bat. So I'll, I'll start with one of my favorite movies. Um, I gotta say Fargo. If we we gotta jump right into it. Like, okay. Coen Brothers are definitely two of my favorite directors. Um, I love No Country for Old Men also, and honestly, it was kind of a hard pick about which one I'd talk about today. But while I think No Country for Old Men is kind of that perfect drama mm. i think that fargo has those elements of dark comedy that i need yeah. from the coen brothers and you know i want to say that it's because of the witty writing but it's the accent it really <laughs> it's is really the, yes the upper northern accents i think that is like maybe one of the most charming uh, yeah. dialects that's ever been put to the screen and of course it's exaggerated in right. the movie that's what i really love about the coen brothers is they'll take real life and they'll they'll play it up and exaggerate it a little bit and i think fargo is the best example of that it's it's a very quotable movie i agree with you yeah like i find myself like after i watched it uh for the first time like a week later i was like going around being like oh oh gee oh gosh i heck margie oh oh heck Uh, i i uh i killed my wife um (laughs) <laughs> verbatim quote yeah, verbatim Fargo. Quote. oh heck I killed my wife no. um, yeah I would honestly Fargo's a little bit lighter actually it's a lot lighter in tone than No Country for Old Men and I think it makes it a little bit more rewatchable than No Country even though No Country is pretty much a masterpiece actually yeah. I think they're both you know really good I agree I, I don't use the term like perfect to describe a lot of movies because right. I mean sure there's always some kind of flaw there yeah. but I don't really see too many flaws in Fargo or No Country for Old Men. I'm going to be honest, like, me neither. <laughs> like, yeah. I really think they hit it out of the park with those two movies, specifically. And I guess what I admire about Fargo 
is that it's not based on anything. Like, No right. Country is an adaptation, but, mm-hmm. but Fargo is just, like, straight um, from the... Well, not straight from the minds of the Coen brothers, because it is based off of an actual murder. An actual did you know murder. that? Yeah, yeah, I did know that. Yeah, they... Uh... They changed a lot about it, though. Just the wood chipper part really is all that <laughs> makes it into the movie. It was, it was a change for the better. <laughs> and honestly, uh, I mean, we're not <laughs> necessarily talking about TV, but the Fargo okay. television series... Is it is, good? It's very good. Okay, There's, I need to watch it. The, the fourth season's on right now, and you'd be surprised. Jason Schwartzman and Chris Rock, you know, mm-hmm. usually comedy-heavy, uh, they kill it in this show wow okay yeah that it's an anthology series though so it's not Mm. always about them like the first season definitely parallels the movie structure in a lot of ways but it branches off into its own original story and it's very coen brothers inspired but yeah i i would say just the mythology behind fargo and and the the (laughs) the the lie that it's a true story it's such an intriguing like little movie and I don't know, I this is weird, but I kind of watch it every December. It's really? kind of become like a Christmas <laughs> feeling Christmas movie. movie yeah. I mean, just because there's snow, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, it just the so I the, the box art for it. I think there's like it's like an almost looks like a I don't know if this is the show box art or if it's the movie, but there's like uh, oh I think, I it's, think it's both. Yeah, where it's like a knitted sweater almost, mm-hmm. and it says Fargo. It's like Christmas colors. Uh, it, it it's very Christmassy. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this Christmas I actually went and rewatched it. The, and you know, I mean, not spoiling the movie too much, but uh, I hope most people have seen it though because right. it's a classic. But spoiler warning: it does have, you know, kind of a, a Christian um, theme to it because Margie is just this pure like uh, I don't want to say Christ-like figure. She's mm-hmm. more of a Mother Mary, and okay, uh, and yeah. the guy that Steve Buscemi with is with is like this pure evil you know like oh okay yeah he just is this brooding like yeah kind of bruce willis looking guy and i mean he just ditches his partner and shoves him in a wood chipper you know does these insanely inhumane things and margie who's this like uh soon to be mother and just Mm -hmm. like really good cop really straight arrow you know kind of has to go to the very edge of like human goodness and I mean, even William H. Macy's character is kind of an embodiment of that, too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the temptation to right. bite by greed and riches, you know. that. That's interesting. I, I never looked at it like that, but it is the Coen brothers, so. I, I don't remember if it was Ebert or someone back in the 90s like mm-hmm. pointed that out. And I was like, oh my gosh, I, I had no idea. Well, the Coen brothers are infamous for exploring religion, if you think about it. Like, uh, or... More like just religious, um, oh, this is going to sound weird, but you know, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's based off the Odyssey, but there's like a lot of like religious undertones in that film since they said it in like the Deep South and um, they also did it with No Country for Old Men. Like that's a very, that's about literally. Yeah, Javier, Javier Bardem is like basically the devil. Exactly. Like that's. Uh, yeah, and they, I mean, the. I watched a, I watched a, a, a famed video essay on YouTube. Oh my gosh. By one of these uh, film video essayists. I forget I forget what uh, which channel it was, but he he There's was. So many. Uh, uh, there are so many, <laughs> but he was talking about No Country for Old Men and the theme being the silence of God, 
um, talking about, uh, and the movie makes parallels between that and I think it was the book of Ezekiel, I'm pretty sure, uh, about, um, I mean, it, it was like, I never, I never thought about it until he started pointing out these verses with parallels of scenes or sequences in the movie. And I was like, oh my God, this movie is literally about, like, is God real or not? And if he's real, why is Javier Bardem killing all these people yeah. like this? It's, it's really interesting. Um, and he so gets yeah. away with it at the oh, end. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, so many spoilers for Cohen Brothers movies. We may be better jump uh, away from them. Yeah. I might, I might have to add like spoiler warnings, like in post. <laughs> Just yeah. add a little. We'll have a. We should have a sound for when we're about to. I've all just spoilers, but oh, we'll just talk to a fake editor, Sophie. Uh, fix that in post. <laughs> <No>, Sophie. <laughs> Sophie's our editor, guys. But uh... what about you, Casey? What's uh, what's one of your favorite films? So. Um... We're going to get a lot of people that click off this podcast immediately once they hear my thoughts about my favorite films. So here, I'm going to say, I have a few favorite films that are like tied for like first place. And then I'm yeah. going to go ahead and say what my absolute favorite film of all time is. Oh, you is. can pick a, a first? Yeah, do you want to say another? Couple? No, no, I, I, I just, man, I don't know if I could pick a all-time favorite. That's just so hard for me. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> I just know that there's one that is just gonna be like there my entire like my opinions about this one movie are never gonna change my opinions about other movies may change my gosh there's, you there's one that I, I know um no okay so stay tuned yeah right <laughs> so um i'll go ahead and mention one because i've been watch i've been watching the series hannibal um oh. i'm on season two um so far i really like hannibal but i've been watching hannibal because i recently watched red dragon and i was like Interesting, and I mean, you were the one that told me to watch Hannibal because you're like they yeah. kind of redo Red Dragon in the third season, and I was like, I would like to see that. Yeah, it's it's very cool. I Rim, Richard Armitage, uh, who's mm-hmm. from The Hobbit, like he right. kills it in in season three. I mean, anyone who hasn't seen uh, Hannibal the show, I'd highly recommend it. Max Mikkelsen is fantastic. Oh my god, he's role. he's one of the most overlooked actors I think of this like the past like 20 years because the dude's been in like I think on his I think on Letterboxd it has him down for like 80 something films and he's great I love mm-hmm. Mads Mikkelsen it's it, anyway all this to say uh, I started watching Hannibal because one of my favorite movies of all time is the Hannibal Silence Rising. of the Lambs Hannibal Rising <laughs> <laughs> yes Hannibal Rising I think it's a 10 out of 10 movie no Silence of the Lambs obviously that, oh my uh, gosh it's it's so good. It's there's nothing um, about it that I think is bad <laughs> necessarily. Um, yeah, it's a five star movie for me, man. Dude, I I don't know if there's like any more solid like horror crime thriller like out there. Like mm-hmm. you know, I think that No Country for Old Men and Fargo are great, just like dramas yeah. that, that makes like elements of comedy in Fargo's case anyway. But you know, Silence of the Lambs. People argue that is just straight up horror, and it—I mean, as a horror movie to go on and win Best Picture, Best yes. Director, like the Big Five. Like I know all, it's one of only three. Right? That, I, that's exactly that's what I wanted to talk about is how like odd it is that this movie was the one to just sweep, you know, award season like that. Um, the Oscars really hate horror movies. I so know this is like I know, and and so like I watched it the first time, uh, the first time. Uh, uh, see, that was about five years ago. It was the first time I watched it, and uh, I watched it. It was uh, it was the perfect setting. I found it on VHS, 
oh, uh, at a yard yeah. sale one time, and I was uh, I was gonna buy it. and I was gonna watch it like like basically on my own time. Um, but at the time, I was with my parents at the cabin. We have a cabin out in the middle of nowhere that we go on vacation. Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> so. And I, and I, it was just, it was, I had it with me and my parents were like, oh, Silence of the Lambs. Oh, you've, you've got to watch Silence of the Lambs. And I was like, you, you guys, cause they're the ones, they, they, they don't watch like, you know, like horror movies, thrillers or anything like that. But they said they remember watching this in theaters and I was like, oh, and they're like, this is a great movie. So I was like, well, hell I'll, I'll put it on. And so we watched it for the first time and I really liked it, but then I revisited it revisited it about a year later because when I learned that it won Best Picture and all these like what what did it win? All it won top Best five? Screenplay, Best Actor, yes. Best Supporting Actor. Oh my god. Like, it was just incredible. Yeah. So I learned that and I was like, dang, okay, I I need to watch it again and pay more attention to it. And when I watched it again, that's when I was like, Alright, this is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Like it really got me the second time I watched it. And since then I've watched it like three other times. Like it's so great. I love it. It it's a, definitely a movie that's ahead of its time. Like mm-hmm. the, even just in its themes, like there weren't a lot of movies in the '90s that were talking about sexism in the workplace. It felt yeah. like you know, like that was front and center. Mm-hmm. And Silence of the Lambs is like Clarice is not being taken very seriously by any of her colleagues, and yet she's she's on it. She, she's yeah. just like the best. Uh, worker they have out there right and that's what i really like about the movie is even though hannibal is manipulating her a little bit like it, it never says clarice is like stupid or anything yeah you know? exactly. like it, it shows that her higher up boss jack uh yeah what's his name I think it's jack wasn't it? it it's Lawrence fishburne's character in the show but i can't remember the name oh it's that's jack right yeah is it yeah jack crawford that's his name yeah yeah but like it you know, what What I really like is Jack Crawford even, like, doubts her in, like, pivotal mm-hmm. moments of the movie, like, even right before the climax, and you see that he's the one who's been played the whole time. Like, right. he's playing right into Hannibal's hands. Yeah. And Clarice is just such a strong character. I think that's I one know. of the biggest failings, actually, of the sequel, Hannibal, mm-hmm. is that Jodie Foster didn't come back. It was, yeah, uh, I didn't. I didn't watch... Hannibal like I've only seen like little scenes from it because uh. <laughs> I didn't I didn't bother with it I was like I know Anthony because Anthony Hopkins has said the biggest mistake of his career is playing Hannibal three times when he should have only played it once mm-hmm. and I was like dude you're so right like well Hannibal's interesting because like it, a lot of elements do come back like Anthony Hopkins is back and mm-hmm. my favorite actor of all time Gary Oldman is in it mm. yeah um, oh yeah that's but it's true. it's silly it's like mm-hmm. they, they feed people to like pigs and yeah stuff. i remember what's the scene uh i don't know the actor's name but he's the guy that played uh the main character in goodfellas oh um, uh oh, ray liotta yeah okay yeah. so he's in the movie and basically hannibal just takes off the top of his like head like a skull oh, yeah, and, and he starts brains. Eats his brains it's so stupid but it's kind of like it makes me want to watch it just a little bit, but I'm like, uh, like, how much should I go to stain the reputation, my rep, my reputation of like Science of the Lambs? Like it's, like you have that movie and you have everything else, and it's like, really, you don't need to watch anything else uh, besides Hannibal the TV series because that's actually good. But yeah, um, and actually, uh, did you know the first time the Hannibal Lecter character was brought to screen was um, 
like five years before Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, it was called uh, what was Man it? Hunter. Man Hunter. Yeah. yeah, I I'm curious to watch it because uh, I don't I don't know who plays Hannibal in that movie. That's but... uh, Brian Cox. Um, really, he was in like X Two. He's yeah. most recently been in Succession, that HBO show, which is really good. He it's a pretty interesting turn on the character, but like okay. Anthony Hopkins definitely stepped it up. Definitely, a lot. yeah, it's it's great. But um, yeah, okay, well that's that's one, and then um, there's like a tie. Like I always, whenever somebody asks me to my favorite movie, I'm like. It's between Monsters Incorporated, Monsters Inc. Mm. and The Dark Knight. And The Dark Knight is the one movie I was talking about. My opinions on that movie will never change. That yeah. is like a perfect film to me. Like I know and not and not every film is like perfect. Like there's some there's some like small flaws in The Dark Knight, I think, but for the most part, I've probably seen the movie 20 times like all the way through. It just it never gets old to me. I could watch it right now and just like screech of excitement. It's just, it goes to show that you don't even have to make a comic book movie for mm-hmm. comic book fans. Like, if you put the work and effort into mm-hmm. a film like that, it'll transcend that, that like, kind of nerdier audience. Yeah, and exactly. It can reach everyone, because I don't know anyone who will watch The Dark Knight and not tell you that's just a solid drama. I know, It's right? about a man who dresses up as a bat. Like, <laughs> like they made it so engaging. The movie's really... not about, like... Batman fighting people. It's about a man who dresses up as a bat going up. Like, I think the best actual, like, descriptor, like, for The Dark Knight, just The Dark Knight, not Batman Begins or Rises, but just The Dark Knight is, like, one of the lines that uh, Joker has in the movie about what happens when uh, an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Like, it's so good. Like, in Nolan, when he was writing the script, that... This is perfect. Like, it's just a really well-written drama. <laughs> and you have just, like, a lot of elements in that movie that come together really well. Like, Heath Ledger, obviously, is the one that people always go to. But, right. I mean, it's for good reason. Like, mm, oh, definitely. They captured lightning in a bottle with mm-hmm. that performance. And, I mean, unfortunately, due to his untimely passing, like, mm-hmm. we'll never get to see that kind of energy from him ever again. I know. But, and he was going to be in the third one. Yeah, like no, I think that's part of why Dark Knight Rises, is, this is just my opinion, is right. such a dip in quality. Is like, I don't think Nolan knew what to do with the story anymore once he lost the Joker. Exactly. Like, I think he was uh, he was kind of up a river without a paddle at that <laughs> yeah, point. And exactly. I, I, he did the best he could. I Yeah, I agree. But uh, definitely you could tell that the, the writing, he, he, oh God, he probably... He probably went into freakout mode about after Heath passed with like trying to fix the script with that because yeah. I'm sure that what I've read I read something one time that um, he Joker was going to be you know like 25 to 50 percent of the third movie he was going to be in it like way longer he was going to have a huge part in it mm-hmm. um, I don't think I think Bane was always the idea for it but. Joker definitely had something to do with it, and I think... That would have been cool to see exactly. that kind of, like, mix of brain and bronze. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think another element that is kind of surprising that it worked out so well is Rachel being recast between... Right. Uh, Batman Begins and, <laughs> and the, Dark the Dark Knight. Knight. And I think it's a testament to Maggie Gyllenhaal 
that a lot of people didn't even notice. I know that right? Katie Holmes was gone. Like, like <laughs> I, I prefer Maggie or I prefer yeah Maggie Gyllenhaal over. Uh, and I know that she has a lot less screen time, but like I don't know, she's she stuck out to me more in, yeah. in Dark Knight, and uh, well, I don't it's a really know. good performance too, honestly. Would you say um, that it's a fair criticism though that they that they fridge um, Maggie Gyllenhaal? Have you heard of this term? Fri- no. So basically, it's like a comic book term. Like a lot of comic books love to kill off the superheroes. Like main entrance. I think it's based off of a Green Lantern character. Like he comes home one day and he opens up his fridge and his girlfriend's like severed body parts are in oh there. Oh my god. <laughs> but it it became so commonplace in comics to kill off like the love interest to piss mm-hmm. off the hero that um, it's now been a term to describe the whole thing. Like fridging mm-hmm. the character even if I, they I don't, don't necessarily that. die that way. So like Amazing Spider-Man 2, uh, even though that's based off the comic, that's right. definitely fridging definitely. Uh, Gwen Stacy. I mean, we've also got Deadpool 2, which oddly decided to do the same thing. And I then... can't believe they took that route, but yeah. <laughs> but like, do you do you think that it was maybe a little cheap to just kill Rachel to piss off Batman, or do you think that that was well-earned in the stakes of the movie? I think it was well-earned. I de- not definitely because I don't know. I feel like it's such like that relationship between Bruce Wayne and and Rachel, like in that trilogy, like he like she is the. Um, it's not just she's not just a love interest. It's a complicated relationship between the two of them. Something that most superhero movies, like with in the case of Spider Man, it's like. They try well. Okay, in the case of the amazing, well, actually, both Sam Raimi's trilogy and the two that, uh, whoever the hell directed those two abominations, uh, Mark Webb. Mark Webb. Yeah, yeah. there. Well, Which I mean, darn shame. His last name's <laughs> Webb. What happened? He should have been able to do it. But wait, here's a challenge. Tell me who directed the Marvel like cinematic universe Spider-Man movies. I have no. Yeah, because they don't have any substance <laughs> directorially wise, you know. <laughs> Well, because oh, I have a comment about that. But to finish my earlier thought, yeah. the uh, the relationships between superheroes and their love interests are normally just cut and dry. Like, okay, they love each other, and maybe uh, in the story, it's like, oh, we can't be. Uh, it's complicated because I'm a superhero, and the evil guy might want to find you. But with the Dark Knight, it's nobody really knows that they have that relationship. The only reason Joker basically kills Rachel is because. He knows one that Batman acted weird around. You know, he threw herself when he when he dropped her out of the building earlier in the movie. And he just threw himself after her, and he made that comment in the interrogation scene. I think Joker at that point realized he could kill two birds with one stone because he wanted to kill Rachel because of Harvey Dent. He was trying to turn Harvey Dent into the monster, and by doing that, he was like, oh, "I'll get to Rachel." He's like, "Also." This Batman guy also seems to have this connection with her. So, like, their relationship is sort of hidden. And also, you know, he's like, they go back and forth between, like, are we going to be together? And Rachel's like, no, like, I'm going to be with Harvey. But, you know, Bruce Wayne still loves her. It's it's just, a, it's a complicated relationship. And so when she dies in the movie, I'm like, that felt earned and also very unexpected for with the way the sequence goes with the buildings and Joker tells them the opposite one. Uh... It's just, I, don't, I think it was done well. I, 
I think I agree. Like, and I think a big part of that is that the movie is not necessarily about Batman, which is weird yeah, to say because right. he, you know, that's him on mm-hmm. the front cover and that's his title, The yeah. Dark Knight. But Batman's kind of passive in the in his own mm-hmm. like story. There, it's more a story about like Gotham and like the, the, soul the of battle. Gotham. Yeah, the yeah. soul of Gotham, like fighting to like um, keep it. You know, exactly. either in good or mm-hmm. or in darkness, and I think that what the movie does really well is that each player kind of uh, is exhibited just the right amount, and you know, then you don't see too much of them. Like the Joker is riveting because he's only in like twenty five or twenty five minutes to thirty minutes, minutes of yeah. the movie. Like he's not there like Mm-mm. all the time, but when he shows up, he he'll, he'll do something pivotal and mm-hmm. then you know it'll jump away. And it's kind of the same with Batman, except what I really like about the Dark Knight is like, you know, Batman can't do everything. Like exactly. it really is about how the city chooses mm-hmm. to uh, go about its business. Like Batman doesn't save the people on the boat at the end. Mm-hmm. That's the people. Like exactly. that's all their soul. And I guess how it ends is like. Yeah, things kind of suck right now, but Gotham's soul has been saved. Like yeah. at the end of the day, it's a it's a city that um, can can face adverse change and yeah. you know overcome like evil. And I think that's more interesting than being mm-hmm. like a man in a bat suit who lost his girlfriend <laughs> is going to save the day. He single handedly <laughs> defeated all these people. Yeah, I agree. And part of that is I I recently actually dug into this and it just made me love the movie even more um the the whole soul of gotham thing the the whole predicament of uh or pre- i said predicament predicament <laughs> of uh of the dark knight is based off post 9-11 fears like really? people uh have theorized that what nolan was going for which totally makes sense i don't even think it's a theory i think it's what he was actually trying to do the dark knight represents post 9-11 uh, fears after uh, the terrorism, you know, Joker's a terrorist, and they say, um, like, one of the theories was that Joker is an ex-military. Because yeah, the way he talks. I really like that theory. I, and th- that just feeds into, like, the whole post-9-11 uh, idea about it as well, because it's like, Gotham is like a stand-in for New York City after the mm-hmm. Twin Towers, and it's basically like, the people are like, we just had our these planes hijacked and killed thousands of people, like, what do we do? Are we going to let the terrorists, you know... Uh, do it again, basically, you know, uh, weaken us or what and whatnot. And, and I wonder, there's all these different stand-ins for different things. Like, and, and Bush is like, uh, I think, I forget who's a stand-in for Bush. But either way, Nolan crafted it to be like that. Like, this is America, basically. <laughs> uh, and I, it's really interesting. And it, uh, I think that's why critics liked it a lot. Because you can read into stuff like that. Yeah, it's 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 subtle, though. Like, yeah, you know, very, it, never, yeah. it never is too in your face mm-hmm. with any of its themes mm-hmm. that you feel like oh my god they yeah. just hit me on the forehead with this like right. i think the closest it gets to is you know like oh uh i'm i'm more of a figure like a protector yeah, not exactly. just like a literal hero like we get it like they, <laughs> they, they get you with that closing speech but it's endearing right. like yeah. honestly it, it is tastefully done and i think that's why the movie 
really holds up. And mm-hmm. like even though there's an oversaturation of the superhero market right now, I think mm-hmm. people will always be able to return to the Dark Knight. Definitely. And that Nolan trilogy because it, because it's so far removed from superhero movies we have now. Mm-hmm. Honestly, and just this in style, substance, and everything, it's it's different. And Nolan recently commented that the Dark Knight trilogy, the way it was done, could never exist today. He did it in a time, you know, before the basically this genre was like, I guess, set in stone. Like this is how movies should work, and that precedent was set by Marvel. And Nolan had creative freedom that he would never have now that nobody has now to do. A yeah. superhero film because everybody's trying to make their universes his was distinguished like this is my trilogy this is it this is the universe nothing else connects to this which I find very cool <laughs> I, I will say I think it works best when he's the director because I mean mm-hmm. did you know he wrote the story for Man of Steel Still? yeah I know like, he was on the yeah I don't think it works as I don't a think film. It, no, too it much. doesn't. No, like, because no. well, Zack Snyder directed Man of Steel. Yeah, but I and think <laughs> like from a story standpoint too, there's a lot of weak points. It, that yeah, I think I think Nolan needs his brother, like Jonathan. Yeah, a bit definitely. To, Jonathan Nolan I co-wrote mean, all three of the. I know, Dark and he, movies. he was the main writer for Memento. He wrote it as a short story and showed it to oh. Chris, and he's like, "Dude," and Nolan was like oh my god, we gotta make this. And he's like, okay. And so they rewrote the script into a feature length and shot it, and that's one of his... I didn't prepare anything about Memento, but I think that's honestly my favorite Nolan movie, and that would that would easily fit in yeah. like a top 20 or top 30 Definitely. list for me. Like, Memento is Memento's awesome, dude. fire, dude. I Memento, love Memento slaps. <laughs> it does, it slaps. Um, Speaking of, of, of films that slap, uh, by the way, I, I guess since you whipped out, like, your all-time favorite. Okay. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a crack. Okay. At, at one that contends for my all-time favorite a lot, and it's it's more recent than you might think, and it's from a director who hasn't proven himself as much as you think one might need to. But I think Whiplash. Uh, oh yeah. Is constantly like that movie I go back to where I think like this is how you pace a movie. This is how you direct a movie. This is how you act in a movie like it's i don't know that there's anything wrong with it and like you know there's no beyond real life stakes at all like there's no crazy gunmen or like it's very contained yeah it's it's just a guy who wants to get (laughs) really good at drumming (laughs) if you break it down and he's got a mean old teacher except you know is is he just driving uh miles teller to brilliance uh is is the method um does the, does the end justify the means, like, pretty much? Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an interesting question that uh, is asked by this, like, hour and 30-minute movie. Yeah, like, it's like it an feels, hour and 35 minutes, I think. It yeah. feels a little bit longer, but, like, it's it's so perfect. Like, you sit right. down, you can't turn it off. Like, you I have know. to see it through to the it's end. It's so riveting. It's it, absolutely... I'm, I'm glad you said that, because Whiplash is actually on my... <laughs> top like movies ever yeah it's right here on my letterbox list of my five star <laughs> films like i perfectly i agree with you whiplash is amazing damien chazelle is honestly if he keeps i didn't like first man as much I as i still did. haven't seen it you still haven't seen first man i know it's kind of ridiculous that <laughs> whiplash is like maybe my favorite movie and i love la la land like oh, me too. La, oh, yes. la la land mm-hmm. um I just never got around to I seeing mean, First Man. I don't know. <laughs> I saw it in a movie theater 
and I don't know. Like, that's probably the best place you could have watched First Man is in a theater because of yeah. the scope of it going to space and everything. It just, it's not, it's not Damien Chazelle. There's nothing, there's nothing Chazelle about that movie. Like, Whiplash, yeah, There's no Jazz. Land. Exactly. <laughs> well, even, um, which I, I still need to watch Guy and Madeline on a park bench. That was his first film he did. And that's, really? That's I all haven't about. heard of that. Really? That's, it's a movie about ba- music, jazz, basically. But, I'm a fake cinephile. Uh, but. <laughs> but no, he, then he did First Man, and I'm like, it's not a bad movie, but it's, I don't know, I would I would much rather watch La La Land or Whiplash any day, or even the short film of Whiplash over First Man again, honestly. But Yeah. I, um, I think what I really love about... Um, Whiplash in particular is that you can tell that the script is authentic. Like it's based mm-hmm. off of his own experience, like, and in, in a music school. Mm-hmm. And I think <laughs> it's silly to say, but like you know, I used to be a band kid, and Same. like a lot of that <laughs> just feels so real. Like, yeah, the the disappearing folder bit, especially like. Oh my god! When that scene happened, I had set I flashbacks. I was like, I understand this completely. <laughs> I don't know. I think that this is a film that's going to be appreciated by kids all mm-hmm. coming up through the band program exactly. like, across the nation for years and years. Like, <laughs> it's I, their nightmare. I actually have a funny story about that because I was, uh, I played drums in band in high school oh. and uh, I was drum major for two years uh, in a row and uh, I had, uh, I was uh, basically trying to like, you know, tutor these up and coming like drummers that were coming in and they were struggling and I told him one day, I said, you know what? And I went out and I bought Whiplash and I let the drum, like the drummers borrow it. I said, watch this film. And I said, please just watch it. I said, it's not a film to like watch and learn drums. I said, but it should give you some inspiration because they were just like not inspired by like anything in band. And I was like, just watch this movie, please. They went and watched it and then they came back and they were willing to try new things. And like, and I was like, it's probably my greatest, uh, greatest thing I did as a drum major was make all the drummers yeah. watch Whiplash. It was pretty fun. Dude, um, yeah, that sounds a bit intense, though, for, yeah. for high school drums. To it, it was intense, but they, I mean, that's a whole nother can of worms. They, my they came back better, let me tell you. Let me tell you, they actually did. Especially after the verbal abuse, Casey, well done. <laughs> I uh, threw a, I threw a chair at their head a couple times, honestly. No. Uh, yeah, I just love slapping people to get them to count on time. <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> Rushing or dragging? That okay? I think that's also why it's up there for me. Is it's insanely quotable? Like oh my the, god, yes. The the counting scene, the rushing or dragging is is one that's iconic. But just like anything that comes anything. out of J.K. Simmons' mouth is great. Like that. Oh my god. What do you see down there? A Mars bar? <laughs> yeah, it's so good. He was like, "I am not your boyfriend. Do not come early." It's like, <laughs> that's so good. Oh, it's so good. Did you know the line like "I will fuck you like a pig"? That was like a. Uh, a flib and like uh, J.K. Simmons was like don't put that in the movie but uh, Damien Chazelle was like that was so funny that, yeah, that because... should be the take <laughs> when I first watched it and I was like whoa I was like what is that line I was like it sounds like somebody messed up their line but also it works like I yeah. like it so, I love when directors just like let their actors oh, definitely. Like, I think um, that was one of the greatest things about the late John Hughes is that like in Breakfast Club and a lot of those mm-hmm. early movies, he just let the actors like improvise whatever they wanted. Yeah. And it just goes to like make these scenes feel a lot Definitely. more natural. 
And I mean, J.K. Simmons, I'm sure he's a lovely person in real life, but I'm kind of scared of I him forever. I am scared of him, you know? yeah. <laughs> between, between that and his character of J. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson and yeah. the of Spider-Man, he's just so, I don't know, brute and like demanding it's but he's a great actor honestly mm-hmm. he never phones it in have you have mm-hmm. you seen um legend of Korra at all like that uh i watched a little bit of it and i know that he's the uh voice actor for uh, it tends in yeah it? Tenzin. yeah he's like ang's son and you know it's children's animation you don't have to be bringing your a-game because you're like a hollywood celebrity right but he every season he brings it like he actually did that starting before he won the oscar for whiplash and even though he went on to get like that acclaim and you know be asked to be in a bunch of movies like never once did he ever seem like he was just phoning it in for the paycheck for cora Mm -hmm. he saw that series through to the end and i think that's incredible yeah i i think he's um a man of honor Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, to put it best but yeah no i i love jk simmons and i uh i haven't watched all his films that he's been in a He's been in a crap ton of films. He's been in a lot, um, especially recently. You know, mm-hmm. the, when an actor will go through that like best actor or best supporting actor circuit, right. and everybody will try to grab him up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, it doesn't even have to be an Academy Award winning movie. Like, do you remember Chris Pratt wasn't in a lot of stuff pre twenty fourteen, right? Like, pre Guardians of the Galaxy, but as soon as that happened, like he's in every action movie that's coming out at that point. It's kind of crazy. It's crazy to go back and watch her and see Chris Pratt in there. I like, always forget, kind of forget that he's in there. I know. <laughs> and speaking, that's hers also on my list, I believe. Of oh wait, no, it's not. It's not. It's not on my five star films list, but it's. Yeah. I think I rated like four and a half. Like it's a. It's a near. I think. I think. I think hers like that. Perfect movie. I think. Man, like I didn't prepare anything for her either, but like. Uh, yeah, but no, but it's everything about that and the soundtrack, especially by Arcade oh, Fire. Oh is my god, maybe the best film score like out there. Like I think truly, I think honestly, her was like, I've said this in like my film classes. Uh, somebody, one of the professors asked like, what was what was the movie that you watched, or what was the point in your life where you realized that film was like could be like art or like that when you wanted to like pursue film as like a a a life goal journey whatnot and i was like it was definitely her for me definitely it was when i saw film it's like wait a minute this is this is like art and like i want to do this and yeah that was her because my friend i was in like let's see that was 2013 i was in seventh or eighth grade when i watched her and i was like oh my god (laughs) this this is amazing um, so that's a really inspiring film for me. Dude, it, Special it's, place. It's solid. It and I mean, like getting into specifics, which we've been doing already. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I know that something that we wanted to talk about was some of the best movie openers. Yeah, because this is the opening to the podcast. It's the first yeah. episode, the beginning. Yeah, making strong impressions. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to know... What uh, what a film that you have in mind is for like, okay that, so that solid opening right so when we talk about best openings it could be the first shot the first scene or the first sequence and I immediately thought I don't I don't know if you've seen this film I don't know if a lot of people have seen this film okay I'm ready but it's called the Parallax View no I okay heard of this. so do you know um, I'm actually gonna have to look I don't want to get the director wrong but I think I know who it is okay Alan J. P- uh, Pakula Alan J. Pakula 
He did... I've never heard of this guy. So, it's a political thriller. This guy basically started the whole uh, political paranoia. He has a trilogy called the Political Paranoia Trilogy, and it consists of Clute... Uh, was the first one in 1971, The Parallax View in 1974, and in 1976, All the President's Men. Okay. It was like this trio of films he did. Are they all nonfiction stories, like um, All the President's Men is? or I think so. Well, no, they're not nonfiction. Uh, Clute and Parallax View are definitely fiction. Okay. Um, but The Parallax View opens with this... The first shot is insane. It has this Native American like totem pole in the foreground... But in the background is like the space needle. So immediately he's like, look at this, <laughs> like this oh, image of like modernity uh, and like taking over basically, you know, land. It's manifest from... destiny. Exactly. Like right at the forefront. Right like, at the, like that's the opening shot. And you're like, oh shit. Okay. But then it immediately goes into the sequence of an assassination. And then it leads to this chase up on top of the space needle. And the guy throws himself off of the space. And I'm oh like, my gosh. Whoa, and so... Oh, I'm just, hooked just oh, hearing I this. know, right? Wow. It just opens the movie like that, and I was like, well, this film's different. And throughout the whole movie, um, no spoilers, but it's just basically about uh, uh, an assassination attempt. Basically, it's like, who did it? It's like from with, like, the government planned this, or like the quote-unquote Illuminati, the other, uh, was the one. And so the director is... Uh, Definitely does not trust the government. Alan J. Pakula, yeah. he was very adamant. He made three films about it. and uh, But Parallax View is just really interesting. It's it's very dark, and the opening sequence really sets an emotion of like... It feels like he's telling you something that happened that nobody knows about, but it's just, it's just a fictional story he wrote. He may have based it off some things, but... Um, Movie's very like mysterious. Like it's a definite, it's a mystery thriller, you know, political thriller. Um, it ends super darkly, but um, the opening just—it's a great opening. To it's yeah, it's a top top tier for me. Sets it right up. Sets okay. it right up. So what what have you got for us? Oh man, I wish I had some like thing that you never heard of, but the the one I I kept thinking about when I was uh, thinking about what I would talk about. It's a it's a standard. It's it's the Lion King. I don't think that really. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything else that gets you quite as hype as just that that opening shot and that. Yeah, like it just it's all that that the Circle of Life intro is just mm-hmm. like the most sweeping and like epic thing in animation. Like still, like yeah. I don't think it's been topped at all. No. Definitely and not. I think this just speaks to like a lot of elements that I want to see in an opening, which is like it hits you right off the bat with something that has to hold your attention. Mm-hmm. It's got often a, a great score to go with yeah. it. I think Hans Zimmer was at his A game oh back in the nineties. Dude, like, I've said this before. The entire Lion King score is like godly. Like mm-hmm. I love that score so much. That I think that's like my favorite disney movie soundtrack like i'm a sucker for mulan but i think in terms of just like that the 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 score you know yeah like, i think lion king wins it i wouldn't say yeah. that all the songs in lion king win it though like i think no Hukuna there's Matata. a couple that are iffy for I me but for Matata. i'm gonna be really honest. yeah for me it's 
my favorite song, or the one that doesn't do it for me is, like, okay, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? It's it's a, it's great, but, like, every time that sequence comes on in the movie, I'm just sort of like, okay, let's let's get through let's it. Let's speed it up. Yeah, the Nala Simba stuff has never been the, the selling point No, Lion King. For me, it's more Scar. This, yeah. His, his whole song with... Uh, Be Prepared. Be Prepared. That's it's, my favorite. I think yeah. that's maybe my favorite Disney song. <laughs> but, um... Circle of Life, uh, I think what really sells it is that it's set up, you know? Like, this is oh, yeah. something that precedes the main story, like, by years and years, mm-hmm. because Simba's not even, like, grown yet. He's no, just, he's been, just born. been born. Yeah. But it doesn't, like, entice you at all with those details. Mm-hmm. It's just showing nature in, like, mm-hmm. its pure form, and it... it kind of plays into that theme that the Lion King has going on you know the circle of life like passes no matter what and like it kind of returns to that point and that's what I love about the movie is that it starts that way and it ends that way you know they're back on Pride Rock by the end of the movie Mm -hmm. and Simba and Nala have their daughter Mm -hmm. well if you're going off of Lion King uh, (laughs) 2 they have their daughter right and they are presenting her to the world and it's it's a circle it's literally, literally like yeah. you went around and you're back to that point again and Beautiful i think it's just such a yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> joseph uh campbell i think mm-hmm. storytelling yeah. right there he's a terrible racist but we're not going to get into that right now. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh maybe later but <laughs> but yeah no i think i think the lion king is probably the strongest like opening i can think of like that's one that everyone will mm-hmm. recognize as just like a solid start to a movie. I agree. Yeah, but that's that's an animation. I mean, we can dive into. Some I mean, more if, you have a, if you have a, I, let's go to worst openings. Okay. Because okay. we got two really good ones there. Um, but yeah, there are some pretty bad openers for movies. Um, what What do you have in mind? So, <sighs> okay. Honestly, the the new Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. No, I, no spoilers, but that entire movie, I, I hate. I've come to hate it. Now. That's probably my least favorite Star Wars movie, which is saying something because there yeah. are really bad Star Wars movies. I know. I, know. And I honestly, I think just when the Rise of Skywalker opened, here's how bad it is. I can barely remember its full like opening sequence. I just remember seeing the the opening titles like go across mm-hmm. and just thinking. Oh God! And Dude, they waste like, no time copping out. You know I know, they, right? Palpatine's uh, back somehow. Just the dead speak, and you're like, okay, really? Like I don't know. And I just, I think it's the worst opening crawl for a Star Wars. Like, like some opening crawls are like you can quote them from like some Star Wars movies, but The Rise of Skywalker just has the most bland, uninspired, boring opening crawl, and going into it, just the stupidest, just intro into the movie that sets up the dumpster fire that is the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So that's immediately, I was thinking about that last night. I was like, you know, I really don't like the rise of Skywalker's opening at I, all. I think it's just the general confusion of how the opening even relates to the rest of the movie. Like, yeah, they set up a lot of new plot points right there. Like, yeah, and it's not done very well. Like, mm. uh, Adam Driver is just on like Mustafar out of nowhere. Yeah, you're like what's he uh, even doing there? And he yeah. finds the holocron, and like within the first ten minutes, you've already undone everything that Last Jedi sets up with Kylo Ren yeah. being the the 
lead villain of exactly. the franchise, and you've replaced him with Emperor Palpatine again. Yeah. For some reason. You're not even, like, justifying how that happens. It's just like, oh, yeah, he's um, withering, and he's hooked up to some, like, yeah. freaky-deaky machine or whatever. Like, that's... And that's, like... The, you mentioned the holocron. Like, yeah. with that opening sequence, that's all it is, is they just... Here's a MacGuffin. Yeah. Right off the bat. And when I saw that, I was like, really? Like, is this what this movie is? Just a MacGuffin chase? Like... J.J. Abrams, just... he only know MacGuffin, Mystery Box, and <laughs> Lens Flare. <laughs> that's, that's his formula, dude. It's, oh, I just, like, can't describe. Alfred Hitchcock said it best. A MacGuffin is something that the characters in the movie are trying to get that the audience doesn't care about. Mm-hmm. It's, and they just open it up with that. It's not good. It's not good oh, out of 10. I don't I, like it at all. I think that. It's a sad day where I'm more curious what Colin Trevorrow, director of Jurassic World, had yeah. to say about Star Wars than J.J. Abrams. I agree. Um, I think that that's, this is something that's pretty consistent in bad movie openings is that they don't know how to introduce anything the, the story at all. Yeah. And I would say, um, and I know these movies get picked on a lot because they're already notorious for being the worst films of all time, but... Birdemic, Shock and Terror, and The Room are two really mm-hmm. good examples of this because they just are establishing shots. Like, Birdemic exactly. is literally the main character just mm-hmm. driving to work. He stops at a gas station and, like, gets a snack and, like... That's exactly what Tommy does in The Room. Does he stop by the flower shop? Isn't that in the beginning? Uh, I think he, he gets... Uh, hey, Lisa, I think you look really sexy in that red dress. Like, yeah. I think he gets the red dress or something because he's yeah. like, hey, babe. <laughs> a surprise for you which actually brilliant because they set it up in the opening <laughs> shots of san francisco you saw him coming home with the surprise for you babe <laughs> <laughs> so but, funny so funny mark but <laughs> just like this uh this no clear direction in the opening like i think what i like about a good opening is that it tells you where the movie's gonna go like goodfellas they go around to the back of the trunk. They stab the guy, and you get that immediate voiceover. The, like, yeah. Since I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Yes. Like you know where the movie's going. Yeah, right? exactly. It's this dude and how he got here and mm-hmm. how he got to be a gangster. When you watch the room or when you watch Birdemic, you're like, where the hell is this even going? Like, yeah. what are they doing? It's like that Rick and Morty sketch where. Um, the the guy just like is selling the fake doors yes. and then he drives home and you know <laughs> and like, what the hell is it's happening? like still on <laughs> it's just a really lousy way of showing your opening credits i feel like like uh, yeah it, any, it feels tv almost yeah any film that opens with establishing shots my actually my professor uh in cinema history dr keith corson hates opening uh like the openings to movies where it's just establishing shots of the setting and i agree with him because he's like what are you telling about the story nothing you're just you're revealing one thing where it's set and you could do that a million other ways instead Mm -hmm. of just going over the city while credits scroll and there's so many movies that start with that i can't even think of them all um even a lot of good movies start that way like one of one of my favorite movies i've seen in recent memory election has a pretty lousy opening. It's just like some establishing shots of 
this high school that Matthew Broderick yeah. works at, and he's just running around the track, and it doesn't show you anything about what the movie's actually going to be like, which is him being this, like, pretty scummy person and going yeah. up against Reese Witherspoon. Like, you don't get any hint of that yeah. from the intro. And I just think that's such a shame, like, that yeah. so many good movies choose to start which, off that way. Which election? Such a good movie. Did you did you get to see it? I did get to see it, Okay, yes. Dude, I love Election so much. That script is so good. That, but I agree, it starts off just kind of lousy, and you're like, what is this? Until you get into, like, until ten minutes in, then it starts, and yeah. it has that whole about there's one more thing you should know about uh, Stacy or I think it was her name. Was yeah, it and it was like, like the hooking up the with hooking. the like, friend. <laughs> yes, that's such a good edit there. But uh, yeah, the, the opening's just kind of like... Uh, I think that's how films should just start. Like if you have a good 10 minutes that you think you can cut and you can jump to something juicy, like I think that's what you should do. Exactly. Like, I don't think you should waste our time if you know that you're just Definitely. trying to show opening credits. Because that... That's the worst thing I'm talking about. When it feels right. like a TV intro, where yeah. you're just watching it to see yeah. the names on the screen. Right. Which what a waste. Speaking of that, like this is one of my favorite movies of all time, Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. Uh, the opening to that, even though the the the, oh, the music is like it's one of my favorite scores ever, and it's really haunting. It feels very uninviting, and so you're like, oh, I'm in for something. But it all it's showing you is just. The, the the hotel in the city it's like or the apartments it's like where we're gonna be at while it has this pink uh you know uh font like cursive font telling you um even though the music's really good that is that starts off just kind of boring like it's just showing you the city establishing shots before it finally gets in to show your two characters and they're looking at a at an apartment. I think the movie could have just started out with maybe the door to the apartment opening and them showing this is the apartment and then all the rest of that stuff. But well, to, to contrast that another like all time classic movie that sounds kind of boring when you describe the intro is the shining. Uh, Oh my God. But that's actually something I would argue is a great intro. Like you just get that immediate sense of dread from the mm-hmm. score. Like, boom, boom, <laughs> yeah. boom, boom. And all they're doing is driving is up driving. the road to the yeah. overlook. But I remember about the way Stanley yeah. Kubrick shoots that. You just instantly get I remember feeling from. very awful watching that yeah. intro. When I was like, when I was watching The Shining for the first time, I was like, oh my God. Like this, don't go up there. Don't, yeah, know? don't stop driving. Like, that's weird. Um, yeah, I, yeah, it's kind of weird because it is, by all... By what we've been saying, that intro shouldn't work, but it does. Because it's it's switching between establishing and inside the car, isn't it not? Uh, where we get a little bit of dialogue from Jack's character, and then it and then it cuts back to them driving in more credits, I think. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting one. I'm going to talk uh, about one more movie, and okay. I think that you'll have some thoughts to say on this. I think uh, a new director... Ari Aster really Ooh. knows how to start his movies. And oh. I'm going to talk about Midsummer okay. because I think it's a solid 20 minutes before you see the the opening title in that. And it's just yes. this wonderfully like tense and very well acted like 20 minute intro to establish the stakes of the movie. And it's so great because you don't see a single name go through the screen or anything. You, I mean, you do get some establishing shots right at the 
right at the start, but it, right. like it doesn't waste time with them. Mm-hmm. And it, the score, that like kind of majestic like uh, cult score, is right yeah. there at the start of the movie with that with that uh, painting. Do you yeah, remember? It starts mural. with the painting that it tells you shows the whole everything. Story. Yeah. That, that's what I was going to say. It kind of has two false openings, mm-hmm. Midsummer Day, because it opens with the mural and it's like the, the like you're in a fairy tale. And then it opens to just like the landscape of, uh, what, where are they again? They're, they're, they're in the States in the, in the opening. Which... No, no, but um, it shows when they go to the cult, it opens up with the mountains of where they are when they meet the cult. I, oh, I, Sweden? Sweden, yeah. yeah. It opens up with mountains of Sweden and that woman is singing like that eerie kind of like hymn. And she's just kind of like, kind of humming, and it shows different establishing shots of the mountains. But then it, then you hear the the phone rings, and you're, you're there in the states, and then it cuts in and cuts in, and yeah, it's a really weird opening. But by then, when the, you hear that phone ring, it's very jarring, and you're like, oh wait a minute, and then that entire sequence is just. It takes chef's kiss. it takes the Inglorious Bastards approach, which is to just start with this really nice long like establishing sequence and then we can jump into the rest of the movie like it's a it's a prologue like if there were a book this would definitely be a a chapter type of prologue and it would definitely be before a chapter one right yeah when i first watched the movie and that that opening sequence i was like where is this going like this is not what the movie's about and then uh i was like wait and this is what the movie's about and i should have known because in hereditary i've never and this is the first time in a horror movie i've actually felt uh, dread and actually when uh, in Hereditary when spoiler alert when the when the girl gets decapitated oh god uh, and she finds it and she's like just screaming crying like that is just an awful feeling I remember being in the theaters being like dude I hate this right now but it's so good and I felt that same way with the opening sequence of Midsummer. it was just that feeling of holy crap dude that's he just like he takes a hammer to your head like first mm-hmm. off and then you're it's like what else can happen in this movie that it's insane he really understands like family drama and then i think midsummer would go on to prove that relationship drama oh my is God. something that he has under his boat apparently he's thinking about doing a comedy next which yeah it's a dark I, i'd be interested to see. i'm so ready for whatever he does next whatever have you watched his short films? That no, made? not yet. Okay, you need to watch The Turtle's Head. Uh, okay. Audience, go on YouTube and just type in uh, The Turtle's... I think it's called The Turtle's Head by Ari Aster. It's a short film. It's like... It's um, it's riffing on Chinatown. But it's so funny. And it's done in such a great way. Um, oh, it's so good. But it's really funny, too. It's, a, it's like a dark... It's a black comedy. Um... And I think that's why he wants to do like a comedy next is because some, a lot of his earlier short films are more on the comedy side, but he just does horror so well. Um, uh, he's he's brilliant. And I mean, that's just a brilliant intro. And mm-hmm. I think if I had notes on how to start a movie, I would say, look at that. Like, yeah. look, look at Midsummer. Look even at Hereditary. Like, yeah. Just examine those mm-hmm. and, and take some notes. Now, I know we've been talking for a while, but before we wrap up, I, I kind of wanted us to both maybe talk about what we would want this podcast to like kind of be, like, yeah, you know, definitely. our goal in doing mm-hmm. it. Like, Casey, what, what do you have in mind um, to doing this? I think, uh, I didn't realize, but we didn't talk for an hour. Wow. We, we were only going to be like 35 minutes, but <laughs> when we start talking, it's, it, it kind of takes off, yeah. man. 
Um, but no, um, I really, uh, we, well, we definitely want to have a bunch of guests on here at some point. We want to get other um, people like to, to, we basically want it to be a place where we can actually talk about film and not just talk about, uh, I've been feeling fatigue with movie reviewer, like movie review channels mm-hmm. and just like film channels in general because they seem to just talk about either the new movies that are out and they want to review the new movies or they want to talk about what Marvel's doing next. They want to talk about what Disney's doing or DC's, uh, the D- the whole DC superhero universe. Just a bunch of that nonsense. But I really kind of want it just to be a place where we can talk about films in depth, kind of go mm-hmm. you know behind the... Or go further than face value, um, and just basically also um, turn what would normally be like a ten minute video essay into like you know a forty five to an hour like discussion yeah. about different topics. And we have some topics lined up that I think are really interesting that the that I don't ever really see on like on like uh, in podcasts or like on even like with some video essays. I was just kind of thinking like. Why does nobody talk about this? Well, let's talk about this. And personally, I'm really into exploring and studying uh, genres and genre life cycles. Um, I mean, my favorite like genre ever is like westerns, and westerns have a very interesting history and their whole genre life cycle. And so, just I uh, want to you know maybe incorporate a little maybe incorporate a little bit of film theory into mm-hmm. into some things, inject some culture uh, into because. A good way to think about film is also looking at world history. Yeah. Um, and I love history. And it, history and film go hand in hand. Like, film reflects, you know, the time that a film is made in. Like, a, films from the 70s, they feel different than films in the early 2000s or right right now. It's like, well, that's obvious because the political climate has changed. Every mm-hmm. film is political, whether you, whether it's in the story or whether how politically it was made. So I just I like thinking critically about movies. We're very critical people, but we love film, and uh, that's kind of what I want it to be. So I I definitely agree. I think that one of the biggest shortcomings about like YouTube film criticism is that it often it seems like the reviewers feel the need to only talk about one movie. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean that's fair. When a new film comes out and people yeah. want to know if they need to see it, like. Yeah, it's good to be able to just have a six-minute video. And we'll probably do that as well sometimes. Yeah. Talk about new movies. but Quick reviews. Quick reviews, know. yeah. That'd be nice. But, like, I am more interested in, like, hearing about movements going on in film mm-hmm. and, like, as our world changes around us and our worldview. Like, I, I like to examine how that affects, like, filmmaking. Like, mm-hmm. I think we're going to have a strange year next year oh in 2021 of yeah. post-pandemic um, mm-hmm. film world like what is that even going to be like I know yeah, and I'm sure there's already movies like cashing in on this right definitely. now because that's how things work yeah <laughs> but <laughs> I would definitely love to incorporate yeah those t- topics of culture and history and, and put them into our podcast and just like really talk not just about films but about the world around mm-hmm. films, and I would I would love to do that with you. Yeah, you want to yeah. keep doing this? I should, yeah, I should keep doing this. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, would like for this to be a weekly thing. Or, yeah, yeah, I'd like to do a, a weekly uh, talk because I, I, you know, I like talking about film. I'm a, Me too. I'm a filmmaker, so uh, I'm just yeah. an enthusiast. <laughs> 
me and Isaac just happen to have a lot of uh, the same opinions and uh, a lot of differing opinions actually yeah. that we'll probably get into later. Oh, I'd love to discuss that. But um, and yeah, I would, I would love to hear if anyone's listening to this, like what you would like us to talk about at some point. Like yeah. I'm definitely, I don't think that I know everything in the world about movies. Definitely, so I'd, I'd I mean either. To, yeah. If anyone has a topic that I don't really know about, I would love to look into it definitely. too. Yeah. We love we love researching. At least mm-hmm. I do. I've I love uh, I would I re- I buy so many film books and I like reading about like I have a, movies of the '60s. That's like my favorite era for film. So uh, if you have books or literature about uh, certain things in film that you would recommend, hit me up. I will probably read it. Um, love expanding what, knowledge. So maybe uh, we could sign off with like a, a handle that people can reach us at. Yeah. Um, you get, yeah, uh, you can reach us, uh, well, you can reach me, Casey Hubbard, on, uh, uh, I'm more active on Twitter than anything else, so my Twitter is, uh, at Casey the Courier, um, so you can reach me on there, I, I tweet a lot of film stuff on there, too, so. I, uh, I'm, I'm also best reached by Twitter, and my username is ridiculous, but here, let's go, <laughs> I'm at Mr. 754222, you know, if you can come up with a catchy like <laughs> jingle for that, that'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, uh, Mister seventy five forty two twenty two. Wait, yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was it. I got all the numbers. In there. <laughs> uh, if you're viewing this on YouTube, uh, let us know down in the comments what are some of your favorite movies and some of your favorite movie openings of all time, or maybe the worst uh, film openings of all time. We'd be interested to read that and. Um, I guess uh, until next time. Yeah, I've been Isaac. I've been Casey. This is Mind Over Movies. This is Mind Over Movies. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>